Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. An election in the upper house of Japan has delivered a supermajority to Shinzo Abe, with two-thirds of it in control of his Liberal Democratic Party and its allies. The win is a substantial vote of confidence for the Prime Minister and his policies, and with a similar majority in the lower house, he now has the legislative firepower to make substantial changes, including rewriting Japan's pacifist constitution. Here to discuss the election results and what Abe could do is Dr David Envil, a research fellow in international relations at the Australian National University and an honorary associate of politics and philosophy department at La Trobe University. Thanks for joining me, David. Thank you for having me. Oh, welcome back to the podcast, shall I say. Indeed, thank you. We're here to discuss uh, the election outcome. How important was this to Abe and his government and was it an easy win for them? It seems like quite a sweeping victory. Well, it's certainly a significant victory for Abe in terms of uh, further consolidating uh, his position uh, at the top of Japanese politics. Surprisingly, it was a very strong uh, win uh, for the LDP and their coalition partner, uh, Kormeto. They did very well. They won a majority. And on the other hand, uh, the opposition parties, and particularly the Democratic Party, did rather poorly, uh, losing seats. The LDP uh, nearly uh, won a majority in its own right, and this would have been the first time uh, since the late 1980s that it had done this. And fortunately for the LDP, since the election, an independent from uh, a regional prefecture has uh, joined the party. So they now have a majority in their own right. Uh, mm. This doesn't mean they'll drop the coalition. Kometo is uh, very important to... Uh, the LDP, so uh, I think they'll continue together. Uh, the result, of course, does mean when you take the coalition and uh, you take uh, uh, like-minded parties in the upper house, uh, the LDP now does have close to that supermajority to uh, begin the process of changing the constitution. So significant victory. Is it a solid coalition then? Uh, yes and no. Uh, it's proved solid uh, in recent years. Uh, it's stayed together. Uh, the two chief parties, the LDP and the uh, Kometo, have cooperated in a number of areas. However, there are still serious, I think, policy differences, particularly on the constitution between the two sides that may play out in uh, the coming period. This was the first election where uh, under 20s could vote. They lowered the voting age in, in 2015, I believe, to 18. Yep. Yet it's still been a sweeping victory for a conservative power, which is quite interesting in itself, isn't it? We might think that younger voters would uh, tend to uh, towards progressive political parties uh, in any country. In Japan, they've uh, followed perhaps the, uh, a similar uh, attitude to uh, other uh, voters and stumped for the conservative side of uh, politics. Uh, and perhaps this uh, reflects the again the weaknesses of opposition progressive politics in Japan at the moment. Mm. What position does that put Abe in now and what kind of things can he do or do you think he's he's likely going to do now that he's got this majority? Because you need two-thirds majority to push through legislation change and he's got that in both houses now, doesn't he? He has uh, sufficient numbers in in both houses to pass a vote to change the constitution. Of course, uh, there also needs to be a referendum. So it gives him that opportunity I suppose in terms of changing the constitution, though, we have to think uh, not just in terms of the numbers in the parliament, but also uh, the type of changes uh, that might occur and what kind of uh, further political obstacles might emerge uh, in terms of changing the constitution. The numbers are pretty tight. 
Uh, so, for example, uh, defections on controversial issues, if the if a constitutional debate got uh, vigorous, uh, would undermine that. Mm. Um, and then, of course, there's also the position of the, the Cormethal Party, who are enactment of security legislation recently caused a huge debate and some controversy uh, in Japanese society. Komedo are very much opposed to further diluting the pacifist article, Article 9 of the Constitution. I think this is largely off the table in terms of realistic politics in the coming couple of years. Uh, it's certainly Abe's uh, ambition to change that, uh, but I think he's a realistic, pragmatic politician uh, as well as perhaps a uh, a nationalist, uh, so I think he might look elsewhere for constitutional change. And there's been a number of areas of the constitution that have been up for debate as to uh, what might be changed or, or remain. Can we stick with with Article Nine for a second? You say that it's it's off the table, so you think it's a bit of an unrealistic thing to aim for. I think it's highly unlikely, uh, but it has been a an ambition of Abe, isn't it? It's certainly been his ambition, yeah. and certainly the key part of the conservative nationalist factions within the Liberal Democratic Party. Uh, have wanted to dilute Article 9. However, I think realistically what they achieved over the last couple of years in terms of reinterpreting rather than revising Article 9 to allow collective self-defence is probably all that can be realistically achieved. So they need to get through uh, parliamentary debates on constitutional change, then get the vote to go their way, so the numbers are pretty tight. And then they need to persuade the Japanese public that change on Article 9 Mm. uh, is viable and it has to go to a national referendum. So this is all about getting an official standing army back in operation. The funny thing about Japan is that it's often considered not to have a a military force and and yet the self-defence forces are incredibly sophisticated. They've increasingly trained uh, with the United States military and also with Australia. Uh, They are a pretty capable, uh, well-resourced defence force or military. So I think it's more about freeing up the legal uh, basis upon which Japan might act and therefore giving Japan more, more scope. So the collective self-defence issue is the obvious one. By reinterpreting the constitution to allow collective self-defence, so that is to come to the defence of allies and partners, this means Japan, say, in a conflict in somewhere in East Asia, uh, could actually come to the aid of the United States, where previously that was unlawful. Mm. And that's a key difference. I think that's a, a big shift. But the way the this has been interpreted, and certainly this was the arguments put forward by Kometo, it's been done in a very restricted way. So a number of requirements have to be met. Uh, Japan's survival has to be at stake. It has to be in the uh, near vicinity, so it can't be anywhere in the world. So there's still a number of restrictions. So what Japan can do in terms of just uh, becoming more active globally is still quite limited. Mm. It's clearly a contentious issue, though, to the extent that Abe left this out of his campaigning for yes. this election. The LDP chose to focus more on the economy, and to really not campaign on constitutional change because, as you say, very controversial, particularly uh, Article 9. Uh, And, of course, when people talk about constitutional change, often they think about Article 9 straight away, but there's a huge debate about other parts of the constitution uh, that might be to dilute the rights for freedom of speech, for example. They'd like to uh, introduce uh, clauses that give the government powers in in times of uh, national disaster, uh, state of emergency powers Mm. uh, that are perhaps lacking uh, now. Another area would be to actually reduce the requirements to make constitutional changes, so uh, to reduce the need for supermajority and then a referendum. But progressives, on the other hand, 
might want to change uh, other areas, so increase human rights uh, protections. So there's a real a range of views on what should be changed, what should be left. The status of the emperor in Japanese politics could be clarified, and that's been a, a conservative ambition. So there's a whole range of issues that could all be, through public debate, become quite controversial. Abe's got two years left until the next election, so he's going to want to be able to put some sort of concrete change on the table, I suppose. So what do you think is the most realistic target? I think he'd like to. I think probably state of emergency laws would be the most likely target in the wake of the Fukushima disaster. Mm. Giving the government um, more powers in this area to respond to emergencies may be much more publicly uh, palatable than some of the other more controversial uh, issues, particularly Article 9. The problem Abe faces is the more time he spends talking about constitutional change, he may burn up political capital, and he's also not dealing with some of Japan's economic challenges. And mm. I, I think this is really where his major problems lie in terms of uh, revitalizing the Japanese economy. All right, we'll, t- we'll turn to that now. Does he use the term Abenomics or is that just a kind of a Western media kind of No, invention? no, no. Abenomics is all... Uh, is he, he, all... he picked the ball up and ran with he it. He picked the ball up and ran with it. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a catchy phrase. It's worked. It's worked. Um, it has worked. Him. Yeah. Uh, this is why Abe, at least in terms of his second time around as prime minister, has been able to achieve a certain cut through uh, with the public in terms of promoting himself as a, a politician of change and transformation and economic reform mm. uh, in a way that the opposition parties really haven't. And Abenomics was a key to this uh, back in 2012 when he returned to power. So he campaigned heavily on that this time around yep. his, and his economic reforms and his track yep. record, the work that he's got left to do and what he wants to do. Again, I suppose this win is a big vote of confidence in what he's been able to achieve. What direction is he going to take now that um, now that he's won and he's got this super majority? Well, this is where there are real, I think, problems. And I think the win is a vote of confidence in the sense that the electorate sees Abe as the only viable leader for steering Japan mm. uh, through economically difficult times. It was certainly a vote of no confidence in the opposition parties, but was it a vote of confidence in Abe's actual economic reform agenda? So I'm, I think this isn't quite so clear-cut. And if we look at uh, Abenomics, because we now have stage one Abenomics and stage two Abenomics. Stage one was very broad, a very ambitious transformational agenda. It had three arrows of reform, fiscal stimulus, monetary uh, stimulus and structural reform. So he loosed off the first two of those arrows, fiscal and monetary stimulus, and they achieved some temporary success. But their effectiveness has diminished as time has gone on. And it's this structural reform that he's needed to really introduce. And structural reform, the Japanese government have talked about deregulating, opening up uh, protected industries that have been uncompetitive, so agriculture, the energy sector, and others. A labour market form uh, has been a key one particularly the idea of reducing the uh, protections for closeted permanent workforce and increasing the opportunities for a lower sector of particularly young people who are on short-term temporary uh, contracts, so making their employment uh, conditions better and also increasing female um, workforce participation, whether womenomics or increasing skilled migration, freeing up trade, for example. But on these tougher issues of structural reform, Abe has been much less successful. 
of course, he, the LDP, the government, runs into a number of uh, constraints, uh, political vested interests, traditional supporters of the LDP that don't want to lose the protections that they've enjoyed for a long period of time. This is where he's really struggled. So he's moved on to a, a second stage of Abenomics, which was announced last year, which was the ambition of raising GDP by 20% by 2020, keeping the population above 100 million people. So enacting childcare reform and, and helping families go back to work and enhancing social security, so care for uh, Japan's ageing population. Mm. None of these policies have the same broad structural thrust of the first stage of Abenomics. They're kind of am- ambitions. You know, the idea of increasing GDP by 20% by 2020 is, is, a, is a goal rather than necessarily a plan. Yeah, they, they sound like the kind of promises that any government will make before an election, you know, more childcare. Exactly, GDP, more of everything that's good. GDP and, and 20% now that we're through and the no, election. And no talk about yeah. the, some of the painful adjustments that perhaps need to be made. Uh, and he's also, after talking for a long time that uh, consumption tax would be raised from 8 to 10%, He's then delayed that once and then delayed that increase again. He's worried about uh, the economy uh, going into recession if that tax is raised. So on the one hand, he wants to increase growth, but on the other hand, he faces the problem of Japan's um, very high public debt, which is now approaching 250% of uh, GDP. Mm. So he's in a bind in this sense. A lot of difficult choices still remain ahead. The question of growth and employment and opportunity is really where the key of of Japanese politics and electoral success, that's where they lie at the moment. So I think he needs to concentrate on that. Can we uh, turn and and talk about regional security now? The outcome of this election must have concerns for watchers in China. So if Japan were to adopt the kind of change that Abe wants, what would that mean for the region? Japan, I think, is inherently a status quo power. What it wants out of the regional order is for that order to stay the same. It wants America to be a a major presence in East Asia to underpin uh, security. It's wary of China's rise, both for reasons of territorial differences that the two countries have, um, but also in terms of China's Increasing influence across the region implies a a diminished influence uh, for Japan. So Japan is very much a status quo power. So I think to the extent that uh, some of these uh, constitutional changes uh, make Japan a more active international player, Japan will very much be using that role to try and maintain the American-led order Mm. uh, in the region. But in the international sphere, the Americans would welcome a more... Well, absolutely. Active Japan, wouldn't they? It's a, uh, I think it's so. a buffer between themselves and China. The Americans have long thought for Japan to play a, a greater role mm. uh, within the context of the US-Japan alliance. And they did this during the Cold War. And certainly they pushed very heavily after the end of the Cold War and certainly in the wake of 2001. The American uh, accusation towards Japan uh, was always that Japan was free riding on the alliance. American provided security, Mm. and Japan enjoyed the benefits of that without really contributing. Uh, So I think, yes, the US is very pleased uh, at Japan um, making some of these changes, engaging more actively in the alliance, and also engaging with some of America's other partners in the region, including uh, Australia. So this pleases the United States, and I think it's deeply upsetting for China. And the Chinese see a more active Japan as part of potentially a containment strategy for, uh, for its rise. So that's the area where uh, a greater role for Japan could lead to greater unrest mm. uh, in the region. 
one of the, the features of Japanese politics at the moment is that Abe is, is the, uh, very much the front runner in terms of uh, political leader. He's dominated uh, Japanese politics uh, since 2012, and there's no clear, obvious replacement uh, within the LDP. And certainly because the opposition parties are, are struggling so much, uh, there's obviously no alternative candidate. Uh, and this is one of the chief problems with Japanese politics at the moment. So when Abe steps down, uh, and perhaps because of this situation, he may be granted a, an extension. Um, but if he steps down, then there's no clear and obvious uh, strong leader to take over. Mm. Well, it looks like an interesting situation. Interesting uh, times indeed. Thank you for being a guest today on the podcast, Dr. David Enville. Thank you very much for having me. Here is your souvenir, the Trobe Asia coffee mug. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.